Good morning. Wow, what a glorious day. It's wonderful to see your shiny faces in the sunshine. It makes me think of the uh, REM hit from the early 90s, Shiny Happy People. Some of you are too young to know that song, and some of you are too old to care about the song. Uh, on a day like today, uh, we don't miss having a church building, do we? Um, I can't imagine any cathedral on earth more beautiful than the Shenandoah Valley in spring. Hebrews 3 tells us that every house must have its builder. And truly, this morning, we find ourselves in the house of God. Amen. This last Wednesday was St. Patrick's Day. And I have a friend from college who is a missionary in Ireland. And in his last uh, newsletter, he was talking about uh, something that he called a Lenten loophole. Um, in a typical year before Lent, there are many conversations in Ireland about what people will give up for Lent. Uh, there are even radio talk shows where people will call in and say, you know, what, what they're giving up. Chocolate, uh, romance novels, alcohol, which is a big ask for Irish, uh, video games. These are the kinds of things that people give up. But with all the New Age malarkey that has infiltrated the church in recent years, it seems that some people in Ireland and here as well have even given up God for Lent. So Lent is taken somewhat seriously in Ireland by many Irish. But then on St. Patrick's Day, smack dab in the middle of Lent, things change. St. Patrick's Day starts out Lentish enough. Uh, many people go to Mass to commemorate the national saint. But by the afternoon, it's celebration time. Uh, there are parades and parties. And for many, the day ends in the pub with a pint or two or four. Um, and the Irish, of course, have a reputation for spending a lot of time in pubs, hence the joke, two Irishmen walk out of a bar. Well, it could happen. <laughs> so according to my friend, St. Patrick's Day is a kind of Fat Tuesday right in the middle of Lent. But the last two years, because of COVID restrictions, there have been no large-scale St. Patrick's Day celebrations, no parties, no parades, and the pubs have been closed. And instead, Ireland has faced, uh, like I said, many restrictions, including six months of total lockdown, which uh, is more than any other European country. And so not surprisingly, conversations about Lent and what people are giving up have been muted, and there simply hasn't been a whole lot of appetite for Lenten abstinence. How are we doing with Lent? If we had a Lent meter up here, a Lentometer, what would the readings be? Like uh, Pastor Kevin said a few weeks ago, Lent has been hard this year because of COVID. We feel like we've been in Lent for the last year, for the last 12 months. It's hard to fully enter in. But today is the fifth Sunday in Lent, and according to our lectionary, it's also Passion Sunday. Passion Sunday signals the two last weeks of Lent, 
and sometimes it's called Passion Tide. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday, of course, the beginning of Holy Week, perhaps the most concentrated and intense week of the church year. And the call of Passion Sunday, then, is to prepare for Holy Week, the coming of Easter, so we don't just sort of stumble into it on Palm Sunday. But what do we mean by passion in Passion Sunday? Um, you'll have to forgive me here a little bit because in, in my uh, regular day job, I'm an English professor, but I'll keep it short, I promise. Um, let me just give you a little bit of history about the word passion in English. It comes from the Latin word passio, and passio comes, is a verb, uh, comes from the verb form passus, which comes from the verb patior. And patior means to endure or to suffer. So passion then means suffering. Suffering. Today is Suffering Sunday. The root of patior is pati, and it's where we get our words patience and patient. So the next time you're sitting in a doctor's office waiting for an appointment that was supposed to start half an hour ago, reading a two-year-old magazine while a two-year-old child screams in his mother's arms, you are quite literally suffering as a patient exercising patience. And we see this idea of passion as suffering preserved in a word like compassion compassion, which literally means to suffer with, to suffer with someone. And that's what we're called to do at the end of Lent, to suffer with Christ. The word passion first appeared in the English language about a thousand years ago, and it was used exclusively to refer to the passion of Christ, the sufferings of Christ. Specifically, it was used to talk about passion plays, these uh, dramas that were used to sort of uh, act out the sufferings of Christ on Good Friday. Now this is partly due to the fact that all the texts from that time period, most of them are religious. And yet I think it's striking that the word passion in English begins with the sufferings of Christ. The passion story is of supreme importance to the four gospel writers even more so, perhaps, than the resurrection story. And you can see this in the narrative structure of the Gospels. In Mark, which uh, is considered by many scholars to be the first Gospel that was written, the resurrection story is not given much attention. In fact, it's more like an epilogue to the book. In the earliest manuscripts, there are only eight verses that talk about the resurrection. By contrast, there are 119 verses that talk about the passion. Now, of course, the New Testament verse divisions weren't really created until about 1500, but if you do a word count of the original Greek, depending on what version you use, uh, Mark has 143 words devoted to the resurrection and 1,981 words devoted to the passion. We see a similar kind of proportion in Matthew as well. Uh, 121 verses about the Passion compared to 21 about the Resurrection and the Commission of Christ. Uh, you get the idea. Luke and John have a bit more to say about the Resurrection, but it's interesting that about half of the Gospel of John, chronologically speaking, describes events that take place in the last two weeks of Jesus' life. Half of the Gospel, the last two weeks. Now, part of this, part of the reason why the, the 
passion narratives are longer than the resurrection narratives is because they, the passion narratives cover more ground, more time, more events. But still, the narrative concentration of the gospel writers in the passion narratives, in terms of dramatic tension, in terms of descriptive detail, is superlative. And this heavy emphasis that the gospel writers place on the suffering of Christ is something that we have to reckon with. It's just simply there in the text. And of course, the last two weeks of Lent provide an ideal context in which to do this. There are various reasons for the sharp focus that the gospel writers have on the passion. And I think one reason has to do with feelings and emotions. The passion narratives are, the gospels aren't only intended to reach our minds, they must also arouse our affections. The passion narratives are intended to knock down the doors of our hearts so that Jesus may enter in. Even those who don't profess faith find the story of Christ's death full of pathos, full of deep emotion. Jesus' last meal with his disciples, a moment of sadness yet hope. Jesus' heart-wrenching agony at Gethsemane. Judas's cold betrayal and then despondency. Peter's initial boldness followed by cowardice and deep shame. Jesus' nobility in the face of humiliating mockery. Jesus' care for his mother. We see that in the Gospel of John. Jesus' forgiveness of his executors. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus' extension of mercy to the thief. Today you will be with me in paradise. And then Jesus' spiritual anguish on the cross. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And in the midst of this unimaginable physical pain, we see Jesus' resolute purpose. It is finished. It is finished. Powerful pathos. So if we fully engage the passion of Christ with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, there must be a response of amazement and awe we must arrive at the place where Charles Wesley was when he wrote the words, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? In our gospel reading, there's a verse which appears on the front of the worship guide. You can see it there, John 12, 26. Kevin already quoted it. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. In the season of Passion Tide, then, we are entering into Christ's suffering. We are to accompany him in his agonizing journey to the cross. And when we follow our Lord to the bitter end, when we watch in wonder and horror as he drinks the cup, the bitter cup that his Father wills him to drink, yet with Easter hope in our hearts, we're doing something that the original disciples were unable to do, ultimately. The shepherd was struck and the sheep were scattered. But even before he was arrested, the disciples couldn't really track with Jesus, could they? They failed to understand much of what he said at the Last Supper. 
And after the Passover meal, Jesus took his disciples with him to the garden to pray. And at this moment of profound vulnerability, when Jesus wrestled with God's will, what did the disciples do? They fell asleep. We know that there's tryptophan in Thanksgiving turkey. It seems that there's tryptophan in Passover lamb chops too. They fell asleep. Peter does try to follow Jesus, right? To the end, though from a distance. But of course he fails. The only disciple that we know was at the cross is John. The calling of Passion Tide is compassion to suffer with Christ. The believer is not to be a spectator, but in a way a participant. But there are limits. There are limits. And some well-meaning people have taken this too far. We have extreme sports here in America. Well, in the Philippines, they have extreme Holy Week. Maybe some of you have heard about this. Uh, there's a village north of Manila called San Pedro Cutud. And a number of years ago, a tradition emerged on Good Friday of penitents dragging heavy wooden crosses around on Good Friday. Some would also crawl on the rough pavement until their knees were bloodied. And more recently, there have been crucifixions. Yes, actual crucifixions. Each year, three people are nailed to wooden crosses uh, with four-inch nails put into their hands, and then they're, they're raised up for about five minutes. And then they're brought down. I watched a video of this, not out of morbid curiosity, but because I was doing objective research for the sermon. That's a joke. <laughs> and there's one man, uh, Ruben Anahe, who's age 60, and he's been crucified 33 times, once per year. He reached that number in 2019, 33, the age that Jesus was when he died, and he decided that he was going to retire pass this on to other people. Catholic leaders in the Philippines uh, largely condemn this practice, as do public health officials. Apparently, crucifixion is hazardous for the health. Uh, go figure. But locals defend the practice, and it brings a lot of tourists into the town. And they indicate that, well, we have first aid personnel on site to help those who collapse from dehydration and to treat the nail wounds. Well, given the dangers of extremes, whether indifference or real crucifixion, how do we walk with Jesus to Jerusalem through his passion to the cross? There are many ways that we could talk about, uh, but one way that I'd like to just briefly address this morning is a devotional approach to art. One of the great things about being Christians in this day and age is we have about 2,000 years of lived Christian experience to benefit from. It's a treasure trove. We sit on this treasure, and much of the time we ignore it. Uh, some of the most compelling art in Western civilization was created in reference to the Passion of Christ. And I'd like to give one example this morning, uh, Bach's St. Matthew Passion. The St. Matthew Passion is a musical setting of Christ's sufferings from the Last Supper until the burial of Christ. It was composed for Good Friday, and it's widely regarded by music historians to be a masterpiece of sacred music, both in terms of musical craft, scope, and emotional power. The gospel narrative is sung word for word by a tenor who's the evangelist. And when there are speaking parts, they too are sung, like 
Jesus's part sung by a bass, Peter, Pilate. And then interspersed in the narrative, there are devotional responses to key events in the story in the form of arias or songs for solo voice. These are written from the perspective of Christians looking back and reflecting on the story. So the soloists participate in the story then, but they are not part of the story itself. And I think that these arias, these emotional responses which are sung, provide a model of how we can reflect on the passion. The musical heart of Bach's passion setting comes at the moment when the crowds first demand that Jesus be crucified. And then Pilate responds, why? What evil has he done? And then in response to this question, the soprano, representing the reflective voice of a Christian, sings the following text. He has done good things for all of us. He gave sight to the blind. He made the lame to walk. He preached his Father's word to us. He cast out evil spirits. He comforted the afflicted. He received and embraced sinners. My Jesus has done nothing but this. This is followed by an aria, a song of exquisite and heartbreaking beauty. It's an air. It's a song for the soprano, accompanied by the flute. And musically, this piece seems to kind of float in the air. It has an otherworldly quality that I think depicts and underlines the purity of Christ. The text of the aria is, Out of love, out of love, my Savior is willing to die. Of sin he knows nothing. He dies so that eternal ruin and the punishment of judgment may not rest upon my soul. Bach gives particular emphasis to two words from this text, love and die. He lingers over these words musically and parallels them. So a musical picture is painted of how Christ's love is most fully and perfectly expressed in his death on the cross. This is only one example, but a devotional approach to art um, that illustrates the passion of Christ can be so powerful, whether paintings, illustrations, music, or poetry. And I would encourage you to find something uh, in these last days of Lent that speaks to you, especially if you've heard the passion story for much of your life and need a fresh perspective. Some of you have been doing the Stations of the Cross on Fridays, and the art that's being used for that by Michael O'Brien is actually available on the church website as a slideshow. You can access it there. And if you like music, I would recommend uh, two albums. Andrew Peterson's uh, The Resurrection Letters, Volume 1. And I would especially recommend the first five songs, the prologue, which deal with Holy Week. And then I would also recommend Michael Card's album, Known by the Scars. Uh, it's a brilliant reflection, musical reflection on Holy Week. If you have trouble finding art about Christ's passion, I'm sure Kelly would be happy to help. Right, right Kelly? And we're so grateful to you, Kelly, for selecting the artwork that graces our worship guys each week. You could email me, too. I might have some ideas. The point of all of this, uh, all of this is to draw us in, to draw our whole being, heart, soul, mind, and strength, into the drama of Christ's passion. Art can help us get this story into our bones so we can better know Christ 
and enter more fully into what Paul calls the fellowship of his suffering. Paul also talks about the power of his resurrection in that passage. We like that part, right? We want the power of the resurrection. Uh, it's a little harder to want the fellowship of Christ's suffering. So on Ash Wednesday, Kevin called us to keep a holy Lent. And today as we enter Passion Tide, the last two weeks of Lent, let's redouble our efforts to commemorate Christ's passion meaningfully and reflectively. If you already have traction in Lent, great. Stay in four-wheel drive and keep your eyes on the prize. But if Lent has been hit or miss for you, now is the moment to more fully enter into Christ's sufferings. If you've been beating yourself up for not keeping a holy Lent, it's time to relent and relent. Remember the words that Jesus said in our gospel reading. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. So let's be faithful and follow Jesus to the end. Instead of nodding off during his anguish at Gethsemane, let's watch and pray, remembering that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Instead of running away and hiding, let's go to the cross like John and the faithful women who followed Christ. And let's take this spring energy that we're feeling, this uh, rising sap in our veins, and let's finish Lent with strength and purpose for the glory of God. Amen? I'll conclude with an admonition from the letter of Hebrews that is very fitting for the beginning of Passion Tide. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has now taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God.